Good day and welcome back to the podcast. Today it's Saturday, 27th of July, 1946. And before we hear from Bette today, as she describes her first experience or perhaps encounter with Chinese drama, I thought we might look at some extracts from the official report she submitted to Shanghai office on 27th of July 1946. You might recall when she wrote to her supervisor in Shanghai requesting feedback as to her work performance, she referred to various publications that had recently been issued by China office which had drawn a grim and distressing picture of conditions in Shanxi province. In this report to Shanghai, she addresses those publications and the misinformation contained therein. It seems that fake news is nothing new. Specifically, she refers to the Sinra Unra publications and says, These graphic word pictures have included the following statements. Changxi, One of the richest agricultural areas of China presents a barren picture of desolation, destruction and idle expanse of no man's land. Only 50% of the land is under crop in Wuning and from Wuning to Yangling only 20%. Estimates of idle land in the province range from 2 to 4 million mu because of lack of cattle and seed. 76% of the cities and villages are in fearful condition. Changxi's homeless refugees number 13 million and are living like gypsies. Deaths from starvation occur daily and whole families are committing mass suicide. More than 70% of the residents and displaced persons of Qiang are subsisting on a starvation diet. 1,000 families are eating roots, bark and clay, and 9,300 families, sorely in need of rice, are dependent entirely on fish from the Yangtze. A vast army of homeless refugees, 1,620,000, are in desperate need of emergency relief. 2,620,000 are nearly naked. Refugees in the region continue to number over a million. Sinra reports the province as a whole to be 700,000 tonnes of rice short as compared with normal production and needing 100,000 tonnes to feed these million refugees for six months. Betty goes on to say, In the interest of accuracy, we would like to mitigate some of these exaggerations and correct the impression that such shocking conditions are prevalent throughout the province. Betty's report goes on in a great deal of detail. She says, so far, no one of the UNRWA representatives here has been able to find any evidence of widespread starvation in this province, and there is no evidence of general malnutrition. The only case of malnutrition so far observed was due to the lack of production of green vegetables. She goes on to report that Changxi province is expecting a bumper rice harvest. Regarding the estimate of refugees at 13 million, it is only necessary to point out that the population of the entire province totals less than that figure. The pre-war population of Changxi was only 13.5 million, of whom many were killed or died a result of the war, or fled from the Japanese and have not returned. 
Even the influx of transients would not boost the population to pre-war totals. Therefore, if the estimate of 13 million is accepted, everyone in Chengxi is a refugee. Many children in Qiang and elsewhere are naked, probably because they prefer it that way during the hot weather. But adults are sufficiently, though often shabbily, clad. It is true that winter might bring an acute clothing problem. Qiu Chang seems to have a good press agent. It appears regularly in the news as a place of dire distress and urgent need. Qiu Chang residents, for the most part, appear to be moderately well-nourished and reasonably healthy. There is, of course, the customary percentage of poverty-stricken people, but the percentage would be more likely 17 than 70. We have found no evidence to support the statement that residents of Qiuqiang are living on bark, roots and clay. We have seen too many full rice bowls to put much credence in that story. Perhaps it's another case where the observers saw people grubbing around for roots and stripping bark from trees and reported on the horrible famine conditions. Subsequent investigations disclosed that those people were actually digging up roots to be used as table delicacies and certain herbs and tree bark for medicine. Bet concludes, In summary, we should point out that Changxi still needs relief supplies in greater quantities than the current dribble of one LST per month. Conditions here are not ideal. There is hunger, privation, disease and a critical lack of housing. Transportation of relief supplies is still a major problem. However, conditions are not as bad as they have been painted. After the present harvest, there should be sufficient rice for all persons in the province, residents and transients, with a surplus for export to other provinces, taking into consideration the amount withheld for government tax. In the meantime, farmers, though financially strained, have been able to get tools, buffalo and seeds to produce a bumper crop. The Changxi farmers have done an excellent job and have earned commendable results, but if they are to continue their task of feeding China, they must be assisted further, especially in the provision of aids for irrigation. In spite of the good harvest, the farmers will gain very little financially. Unemployment does not appear to be serious, and the distribution of relief goods by Sinra in the occupied areas has been quite effective. Progress is being made in the rebuilding of towns, restoration of public services, opening of roads and repair of dikes. The provincial government, its agencies, Sinra and UNRWA, are cooperating well and making some headway in rehabilitation, although there is still much to be done in restoring communications, railroads, roads and bridges, river shipping, industries, public service, mining and sawmilling. The greatest handicap is lack of money. The situation is not bleak, nor is the outlook black. It might be classified as grey. But now let's hear about Bet's visit to the theatre. Mrs. Betty Suta, Onra Regional Office, Nanchang, Changsi, China, 27th of July, 1946. My very dear people, I have been deliciously swamped with letters these last two days and it makes me 
very happy. I don't know how I will ever get all those letters answered, but I think you will be patient. This circular is my first effort to catch up with myself, so you five people will have no cause for complaint. Incidentally, I have made the big test about addressing of mail, with mother's ever-willing cooperation, and I find that there is very little difference between addressing my letters to Shanghai or Nanchang. Consequently, I ask you to continue with the old address of Embankment Building, 370 North Suchow Road, Shanghai, as long as I'm in China. Our complaints from Nanchang, oft repeated, have at last had the effect of getting our mail posted out from Shanghai as soon as it hits the place, instead of being held there for a week or so. We resented the former practices of the postal clerks very much indeed, but all is well now. This letter will probably be quite short, in view of matters herein before mentioned, but I simply must tell you a bit about my first experience of a Chinese drama. At the outset, I should say that I enjoyed it immensely and that I am likely to become an enthusiast at risk of having my eardrums perforated. Night before last, I had a date with a charming young Chinese gentleman, Mr Charles May, who speaks English very fluently. I was pleased when he increased the party from a tete-a-tete to a party for six, including Bill and Molly Duncan, Marge Block, and another young Chinese whom we have met on several occasions. Although the plays commence at 5pm, we did not meet our host until 7.30, when we proceeded to the site of action. Incidentally, on meeting Charles, I noticed that he was carrying a little paper packet tied with string, looking just like his cut lunch. We parked and locked the jeep and proceeded along the entrance. Frankly, I thought we'd come to the wrong place, or that a Swifty had been worked, because it was for all the world like the local jail. We were escorted through an iron grill, and standing for a moment on the inside, found ourselves surrounded by half a dozen soldiers with bayonets fixed. The babble was terrific, the doorman yelling at the very top of his voice, I know not what about, and much ado about our tickets, ushers, etc. We walked through yet another grill, bamboo this time, and from various grilled petitions, we could see the ever-curious Chinese, masses of them, gaping at us, pointing and giggling. They certainly do get a lot of amusement out of us. We were ushered into our seats, third row from the front, best seats in the theatre, amidst the clatter. The play was in progress, of course, but that made no difference at all to the chatter surrounding our entry. Most people turned their attention towards us, and the poor players could not be heard above the din. But no matter. They seemed to be perfectly accustomed to a certain degree of inattention. The seats were lacking in comfort, true to Chinese standard. They were not bad, though. Like the front stalls of the country picture shows at home, uncushioned, of course. In front of us was the little shelf on which to put the inevitable tea bowl. The tea bowls were bought in just as soon as we sat down, and my immediate reaction was to ignore it. That proved impossible, however, 
because we were told that Charles had brought the tea along especially for us, first installment of the cut lunch, and had directed how it was to be made. I gritted my teeth, hoped I would not die of some wretched disease and drank. It was quite good tea. But I kept thinking, while people all around me were coughing and spitting, about the last person who might have been drinking from my mug. A distressing thought, to say the least of it. Then we settled down for the show. I thought we would have trouble in hearing a whispered interpretation from our escorts, but I need not have worried, because there was no lowering of the voice at all, and, if I said, I beg your pardon, he raised his voice as high as was necessary to inform me of the purport of the show. I really do not know whether you could hear anything at all if you were more than about 15 rows back. I do not think so. Except, of course, the orchestra. Oh, yes. We had an orchestra. There were three men with cymbals, each trying to outdo the other in the quantity of output. There was another very proficient musician who played a Chinese flute, a Chinese violin and a drum. Oh, not together, though it would have all sounded the same. Another musician played the trumpet, always the same little tune, approximately 12 notes, which I was informed meant, you are welcome, you are welcome. And I did notice that it was played whenever the hero or heroine or any other goodie entered the stage. Then there were two or three others with drums too. And that was the orchestra. The din was really tremendous, and it never seemed to let up. Strangely enough, I did not develop a headache. But one would want to be in good physical condition, as I was, before entertaining the idea of going to a Chinese drama. One thing that amused me intensely all through the evening was the way in which the stage hands moved in and around the stage all the time in their dirty shorts and jackets, tossing a cushion or a table or chair here and there, hanging a bit of drapery over a stack of chairs, or even helping the actress to alter her face or her hairdo in the middle of the stage. And that was not all the stagehands had their wives and children hanging around too. Quite a little community of people wandering around at the entrances and along the back of the stage where they could see what was going on. Even one young mother nursing her baby wandered in and out of one of the stage entrances. But you couldn't confuse them with the players, so what did it matter? The highlight of the evening occurred at the most tense moment of all when in walked one of the stagehands with a big board under his arm, about four foot by three foot, carried in across the stage to the wall and hung there in the place of another similar board which he carried off with him. Tomorrow night's program. As for the play itself, I was surprised that I could follow any of it. But the actions were quite expressive and I kept the general trend all the way through. The evening's program comprised a number of plays, all representing stories of a particular era of Chinese history. They are said to be true historical stories. There are only very few players, but they seem to be quite adequate. Scenery is practically nil, except for the backdrop, which changes several times through the evening. The props comprise a few wooden tables and chairs, draperies to cover them, and a few cushions. There are several standard gestures which one has to know to appreciate the activities on stage. 
When the actors are walking around in a few circles, that means they are travelling by foot somewhere. When they take a single high step, they are entering a building. When they climb up two or more chairs, they are climbing up the mountains. When they carry a wand with a switch at the end of it, they are riding a horse, and so on. The villain in the piece, and any other baddies, has his face whitened. The quality of the actress, as such, is determined by the number and the beauty of the wardrobe that she has, and, by George, there were some exquisite robes on that stage. One of the plays, which we saw, involved a fighting scene, and the ballet executed in the course of that scene was surely something to write home about. There were only about eight dancers, and the monkey, and the ghost, the widow, the hero, the villain, and several men representing the militia generally. The woman and the monkey were hardly on the floor at all. I wished that the scene had been longer. It was a sheer delight. So, you can see that our evening was one of entertainment in every way. I did so enjoy it. I only wish that I could better explain it. And now I must conclude. If I want to catch up with those letters, please write again. I will always manage to find time to write back. P.S. The rest of the cut lunch turned out to be peanuts, lollies and cigarettes. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry... The voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne and the featured tune from 1946, Sioux City Sioux, performed by Bing Crosby and the Jesters with Bob Haggart and his orchestra. I drove a herd of cattle down from old Nebraska way. That's how I come to be in the state of Iowa. I met a gal in Iowa, her eyes were big and blue. I asked her what her name was, and she said, Sue City Sue. Sue City Sue, Sue City Sue. Your hair is red, your eyes are blue I'd swap my horse and dog for you Sioux City Sioux Sioux City Sioux There ain't no gal as true As my sweet Sioux City Sioux I asked her if she had a bone She said yes, quite a few but still I started courting my sweet Sioux City Sue. The first time that I stole a kiss, I caught her stealing too. I asked her, did she love me? She said, indeed I do. Ah, Sioux City Sue, Sioux City Sue. Your hair is red, your eyes are blue. I'd swap my horse and dog for you. City Sue, Sue City Sue, there ain't no gal as true as my sweet Sue City Sue. Now I'm admitting Iowa, I owe a lot to you, cause I come from Nebraska to find Sue City Sue. 
I'm gonna rope and tie her up, I'll use my old lasso. I'm a fixin' to put my brand on a sweet Sioux City Sioux.